And today we're looking at um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. However, I'm just going to preach from um, verses 9 to 20. And uh, the reason for that is in verses 1 to 8, Paul, uh, he does a little Q&A session with his readers uh, because he's just exposed uh, religion without the gospel has been completely empty. And uh, that raises a whole lot of questions, uh, particularly for his Jewish audience. He deals with them here in preview form. Uh, He's actually going to come back to them in chapters 9 to 11. So I thought we'll um, cover that in detail when we get to chapters 9 and 11. Uh, So we'll uh, focus particularly on verses 9 to 20 today. Uh, So let's hear from um, God's Word. Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous, not one. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, let's um, pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, know that your word is uh, living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to pierce to the very depths of our heart and expose uh, what we are really like. Uh, It exposes the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And Lord, we need uh, your word to do that. Otherwise, we won't see ourselves um, as you see us and we will go on living with a delusion. Uh, But Lord, we pray that your spirit would uh, give us understanding 
Uh, we know that the natural man cannot understand the things of God, but it's by your spirit that you reveal them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to be able to see the truth clearly. And we pray that you would give us a heart that um, responds uh, in obedience, the obedience of faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Romans, as I've been saying uh, throughout this series, it's, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel of God. And what is the gospel? The gospel is God's good news of salvation in Christ, that there's salvation for sinners. And in order to receive the gospel, what we see in Romans is the first thing you need to know is you need to know the bad news. You need to know the bad news that God is actually angry with everyone. God is angry with humanity because God created people uh, to know him, to worship him, to live in a relationship with him, to enjoy him forever. And yet what has humanity done? Rejected him, turned away from him, worshipped idols instead of the true and living God. That was chapter 1. Uh, Chapter 2, we saw that God is not only angry with the immoral people out there in the world, but he's angry with the moral people, the people who think by their good works that they're better than others and therefore qualify uh, to stand in God's presence. God is angry with them. Why? Because religion is just a mask hiding what the heart is really like. That was chapter 2. And then we get to chapter 3, and now Paul sums all of this up. He comes to his conclusion, and he shows us in very stark terms what we are really like from God's perspective. Okay, If up to this point in Romans we haven't felt absolutely wretched in our sin, today is the day that that um, will happen um, if God's Spirit is working in your heart. And uh, this passage... It really does show us what is wrong with humanity. That's sometimes a question that comes up. What is wrong with the world? Why is it that every time you watch the news, it's just story after story of people hurting each other and uh, doing all kinds of awful things? What is wrong with humanity? Here's the answer. It's in this passage. And uh, when we read this passage, though, and when we think about it today, we actually need to look at it just like looking into a mirror. Because like a mirror reveals what you really look like, that's what this passage is doing. It's saying, this is how humanity looks to God. Okay, This is how everyone looks to God apart from uh, his saving intervention. And we're going to look at this passage in, in under three headings, uh, verses 9 to 20, that is. Uh, and the first one is that every person is enslaved under sin. Every person is enslaved under sin. So you see that in verses 9 to 12. It begins with this summary statement where Paul says, uh, you know, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. Now that's the point that Paul has been making ever since chapter 1, verse 18 in Romans And uh, he's saying that every single person under sin. And that little phrase, under sin, that's so important to think about. Because when when we hear that everyone's under sin, it doesn't mean 
that we're all basically good people, but occasionally we do wrong things. I know that's how everyone thinks about um, the problem with humanity. You know, basically good, but occasionally we do dumb things. No, no, to be under sin actually means we are under the power of sin. It's a power that binds us. Uh, It also means to be under the penalty of sin, that we have done things that deserve judgment. And so to be under sin means that you're enslaved by sin. That sin is something you cannot free yourself from. No matter how hard you try, you cannot erase it, you cannot out-compete it, you cannot change it. We're enslaved by sin. That's what it means to be under sin. And to get across just how deep this problem is, what Paul does in this passage is he groups together a whole list of uh, of uh, these Old Testament quotes, uh, most of them come from the Psalms, and uh, he he actually the first four, which we're looking at in this first point, they all stem from Psalm 14. They're coloured by other passages, but they they stem from Psalm 14. That's the one that Sharif uh, read from earlier, and uh, they emphasise how universal. This problem of sin is. It's, you know, every single person. That's the emphasis. Because you'll notice how each line starts out. It says, um, you know, none, no one, no one, uh, all, no one, not even one. And so this is every person. Every person apart from the gospel is like this. And so we need to go through each statement and and think about what they mean. Because some of them are a little bit confusing. But if we uh, explore them, I'm sure God willing we'll be able to understand them. So let's look at these, uh, these sayings. So verse 10, we have this statement, none is righteous, not, no, not one. And that statement is getting at our standing before God. Okay, if you think about, if you stand before God, what is your position? Not righteous, no, not one. And the reason no one is righteous before God is because the standard for righteousness, as Paul explained in chapter 2, is God's perfect law. In order to be righteous, you need to have kept God's law perfectly. That means not just don't break any laws, but you actually have to keep them. You actually have to do what the law requires. You have to do that perfectly from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And if you do that, then you would be righteous. But of course, no one does that. And uh, often we think about um, righteousness. Uh, when we think about that, we tend to think of you know, how I compare to what other people, uh, which is what chapter 2 was getting at. Um, and compared to other people, you know, some people are better than others. But compared to God, that's the standard of righteousness. That's what his law is getting at. Uh, God's law is a reflection of his character. And so compared to God, the distance that we fall short compared to God, it's like from here to the sun. Uh, Or another way to think about it, uh, have you ever compared an old white T-shirt to a brand new one from a shop? You know, on its own, the white T-shirt, the old one, it looks fairly white, it looks clean. But as soon as you take it and compare it to a brand new one, you realise that the old T-shirt, it's actually not even white. It's brown. They just do that over time. And that's actually the experience that lots of people are going to have on Judgment Day because there are many people who think of themselves as a good person 
And so they imagine that on Judgment Day, they're going to they're get out there what they think is a record of righteousness and bring it before God and say, look, God, look how good I was. But then as they get that record of righteousness out and it comes into the view of God's righteousness and God's righteousness, it's not just like a clean brand new T-shirt. It's actually like a million lightning bolts, dazzling bright. And so when, when you compare your own record of righteousness to God's, well, what does our own record look like? It doesn't just look a little discolored. It actually looks like filthiness in comparison. Uh, Isaiah actually says that. He says even our um, righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. See, no one is righteous. No, not one. That's our standing before God. Secondly, though, verse 11 says no one understands. And here we see that sin is not just the wrong things we do, but sin even corrupts our thinking so that we think wrongly. We cannot and will not understand the truth about God. We won't understand the truth about ourselves. Uh, in fact, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person is not able to understand the things of God. They seem like foolishness to him. And he, he, he went into this in detail in chapter 1 of Romans where he said that the truth about God, it's plain to see. Okay, God has revealed himself in creation uh, creation testifies to his power, his wisdom, and so on. That's plain to see. And yet what do people do with that, that revelation of God? Suppress it. Refuse to believe it. And uh, as a result, we see that it's actually it's a sin issue. It's not that there's not enough information available. The information's all there. It's just that we don't want to believe it. See, no one understands. It's a sin problem. This is why uh, you can have the smartest people in the world. Um, I don't know who they are. Someone, I guess, like Elon Musk or uh, I don't know. I don't really keep up with that stuff. But um, the smartest people in the world can be completely ignorant about the truth of God. The most intelligent people, you know, people like these, these people who invent things, uh, you know, how do you make this technology today? I have no idea. And yet some people understand it. They're incredibly intelligent. And yet, despite that intelligence, can still have uh, values and opinions that are inherently inconsistent. Uh, they, can, they can believe things that are actually illogical. Uh, they can believe things that even go against plain evidence. Now, why is that? How can such intelligent people believe things that are inconsistent? It's not an issue of intellect. It's not a few neurons short. It's not because they haven't read enough books. It's actually a sin issue. That's the point of this, no one understands. See, it's a sin problem. Sin corrupts our minds so that we cannot understand the truth about God or even about ourselves. And that's, a, that's what happens when you're under sin. Now, along with uh, that in verse 11, it, it does say that not only do we not understand, but no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. So now we're not talking about the mind, but we're talking about the will. We're talking about the desires. That no one actually has a desire for God. There's a website called Desiring God. 
that does not appeal to the person who's under sin. Because the person under sin does not have a desire for God, will not have a desire for God of their own volition. No one seeks God. It means that every single person, when they are born, has this inner bent to run away from God, to never look for Him. That's what it means, that no one seeks God. Now, I realise that that is a very surprising statement because we all know people who seem to be seeking God. Uh, For example, what about all those religions in the world? Surely there's God-seekers in those things. And what about... Uh, well, a good case would be um, the Jew that Paul was talking about in chapter 2 of Romans. There's someone who seems to be dedicated in seeking God and yet Paul can say that without Christ, they're completely lost. They don't understand. They don't seek God. How can that be? How does that make sense? Well, you need to realise that when Paul says, well, it's when the psalm says, no one seeks for God, it is talking about the person under sin. Okay, that in our natural sinful state, there is no desire to seek God just for who He is. Okay, people seek things to do with God, like spiritual experience, the uh, sense of purpose, those sort of things. And so you have many people. Many people want to make a God in their own image. Uh, Many people want a God who is manageable, uh, a God who has standards that you can keep and then feel really good about yourself and then look down on everyone else who's not living up to those standards. Uh, Many people want a God who, who suits their own political agenda. But what no one wants is the living God just for who he is. Okay, No one wants God on his terms. Uh, We want him on our terms. Uh, People want God not for who he is, but actually for what you can get out of him. And one way to think about that is, um, I don't know, some of you here might have an uncle who is really rich, but really awkward. And he's the uncle that you never invite to family events because whenever you have in the past... He always says all these things that are really obnoxious and uh, makes everyone uncomfortable. And so everyone in the family has decided that's it. He's never coming to a family event again because he's too awkward. And so no one has anything to do with him. But then one day the family learns down the grapevine that he has terminal cancer. And suddenly everyone wants to be his best friend. Uh, Everyone is concerned about him and and, uh, contacting him Why? Not because they want him. They don't want a relationship with him, but what they do want is his stuff. Okay, They want to have their name written into the will, and so they're very diligent in um, pursuing after him at that point. And see, that's what this is saying. That's how people seek after God. They don't want God himself. They don't want a relationship with God on his terms, but rather we just want his stuff. We want what he can get for us. And that's why you can have people praying when desperate, when every other option has been exhausted. Now you get on your knees and pray, and yet when things are going well, don't even give God a single thought. See, no one wants God on his terms, which is another way of saying no one wants God as Lord. Okay, No one wants to give up control and actually say to God, 
I want to be yours, and, and you, you call all the shots. No one wants that when we're under sin. And so if you can imagine, a, um, imagine there's a path that leads to God. Okay, guess what? There's no one on it. <laughs> Not a single person of their own volition are on that path. Not even one, because it says, no one seeks for God. Uh, it's qualified by saying all have turned aside in verse 12. <clears throat> okay, that's the, that has the overtones of um, Isaiah, you know, where it says uh, all like sheep have gone astray. Uh, together they have become worthless. And when you read worthless there, <clears throat> it's talking about uh, in relation to our righteousness, you know, that everything we do, thinking that that's going to make up for it, it doesn't, it's worthless. Okay, so no one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. <clears throat> Verse 12 also states there that no one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. And that's another one of these statements where you go, huh? Hang on a minute. What about all the good things that unbelievers do? Uh, didn't Paul even mention that in chapter 2, you know, where he talked about Gentiles sometimes doing what the law requires? So how can it say no one does good, not even one? What about all the good things that unbelievers do? Or what about, um, you know, some of you here might have unbelieving uh, grandparents or parents and they're really nice. They do lovely things for grandchildren. Or what about, you know, you can always think of that old retired fella who just dedicates all of his time, all of his resources to the local footy club making sure, you know, the kids get a go and he's always helping them out. Uh, seems really thoughtful. And then you think about all of those people out there working tirelessly in uh, disaster areas, you know, the, the um, earthquakes that happened, and you see all these aid workers going there, even risking their lives to help people who are victims of these horrible things. And you say to yourself, surely those are good deeds. <clears throat> surely those are good things. So how can it say no one does good, not even one? What about all that good stuff? And the answer to that is that in, in one sense, those are good deeds, relatively speaking. But what, remember, what this is talking about, it's how God sees us. How does God see the good things that we do? And when he looks at them, what he's looking for is not just are they good in form, but are they also good in motive? And that's what makes a good deed. A, a genuinely good deed is one that is good in, in form and motive. <clears throat> and uh, if you think about the, um, remember that rich uncle? <laughs> and the family all wanted to be his best friend now. You know, so they're doing all these good things for him. And they're, they're all things that are good in form. So good um, things like uh, you know, making him meals, taking him to doctor's appointments, uh, mowing his lawns. Now, doing all these things, they're all good in form. But what's the motive behind all of that? It's all for self-interest. It's all just to get that name into the will. So you can have a deed that's good in form and yet motivated by nothing but utter selfishness. Now, that's a very obvious example. Um, but then if we dig a little bit deeper, when it comes to motive, what is a pure motive? In order to do something with a pure motive, it must be done not for any self-interest, but purely for the love of God 
and the love of neighbour. And when you really analyse a good behaviour in that sense, we realise that Isaiah was actually right, that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags because there is no righteous act that is completely free of self-interest. But the, the, even our greatest deeds of kindness, there's always a, a, a smell of uh, self-interest there in some way. You know, it might be because we, we do these things so that people will like us or that, so that a favour will be returned or just so we can feel good about ourselves and feel, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a good person. See, even our best acts of kindness can be inherently selfish. And when you look at it like that and you realise that without God doing something very dramatic to our hearts, then that's what the world's like, under sin. No one can do good, not true good. And the other thing to bring in here, which I think does clarify things, is uh, in Hebrews 11 verse 6, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the reason for that is because if you don't have faith in God, what direction is your life going in? It's going in the direction of rebellion. Okay, so you're running away from God. Now, along the way, running away from God, if you do a few good things, are those things good? Well, they can't be. They're in, they're in, in the context of rebellion. Uh, to try to illustrate this, I don't know if this will help, um, you can let me know later, but imagine there's a shoplifter robbing a store and on his way out of the store, he notices that the store owner is really struggling to carry something and so he goes over and he helps the store owner carry um, that thing to its place and then he continues on with his pockets full of all of these stolen goods. Now, was that deed good? <laughs> Well, in that context, it's almost offensive. Uh, you can imagine them looking at the security tapes and realising this guy stole all this stuff, and then on the way, the, the, how outrageous that he would go about helping this, the very person he's robbing. That's kind of what it looks like when you have someone living in rebellion against God and yet doing some good things. It's almost outrageous uh, that it, in that sense. Okay, so... No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good. Doesn't this start to make you wonder, how on earth can anyone ever be converted? How can anyone ever come to that point where they make this decision to follow Jesus? Doesn't it sound impossible? Like if they can't understand the gospel, how are they going to believe it? If they can't seek for God, how are they ever going to turn into that direction? If they can't do good, how can they ever repent of their sin? It sounds impossible. And do you know what? It is impossible. It is impossible for people to save themselves. That's the point here. That's why when someone is converted, it's not because that person was extra smart or because they read the right book or they had the, just the right evangelist come along and say just the right thing. The reason someone can be converted is because God does a miracle. He takes someone who is dead in sin, makes them alive in Christ. That's in Ephesians 2 verse 5. It's what we call regeneration. God giving new life to someone who cannot understand, cannot seek him, 
cannot do good. That's how someone's saved. That's why Jesus says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which means if you are here today and you are someone who does understand the gospel, if you are someone who is genuinely seeking God for who he is, you know, seeking him on his terms, if you're someone who has done something good like repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Christ, do you know why that happened? Because God first sought you, right? That's what it means that salvation is by grace. And when you get that, what does it do? It humbles you. You know, I'm not better than others because I found Jesus. I'm not smarter because I understood my sin and that Jesus is the only way. No, it's because of God. And so it completely humbles us to think that God and his grace would go after us when we wanted nothing to do with him. That's grace. But left to ourselves... On our own, what are we? Jew and Gentile alike, all under sin, enslaved by sin. Okay, that's the, the first point. The second one here, we see not only are we not only is everyone enslaved by sin, but we also see that every person or every aspect of every person is affected by sin. And that's in verses 13 to 18. Uh, in, in some ways, we've already looked at this because we've seen how sin has affected our minds, our wills, our ability to do good. Um, but here, Paul, he groups together an, uh, some more Old Testament quotes, and these ones show how pervasive sin is in our lives. Okay, sin, the pervasiveness of sin. And there are three, three aspects to this, which are very obvious, um, you're going to see. Uh, so the first one is the mouth. So sin shows itself in our mouths. Uh, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Uh, that's from Psalm 5. Uh, they, they use their tongues to deceive from Psalm 140. Oh, sorry, I missed one. Oh, no. The, the, yeah, the venom of ass. That's from, from Psalm 140. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Uh, now, just think about that first image. Their throat is an open grave. What is that getting across? Have you, ever, have you ever smelled a rotting corpse? Okay. Uh, when I lived in Bort, we owned this big old farmhouse, and uh, one day this enormous rat, biggest one I've ever seen, it decided to crawl into our roof and die <laughs> up there. Like of all the places, come on. And you know how it goes. Um, you start to smell something, and then the next day it's a little bit worse, and the next day it's just unbearable. So I climbed up into the ceiling to find out what was going on, and then I saw it, uh, this, this massive rotting rat full of maggots, and I will never forget the smell. It was, I'm telling you, it has actually reduced my life expectancy, having that stuff go into me. It was absolutely horrible. But when... when when the psalm says their throat is an open grave, it's actually saying that the words that come out of our mouths are sometimes as vile as that. Sometimes they're that offensive. You know, a smell, it's just offensive. That's what our words are like. And it, it's a metaphor here. It's, the metaphor is 
that our, our throat, it's, the throat's kind of like a tunnel. And at the bottom of that tunnel, there's something deeply rotten, absolutely putrid. And that's what's causing all of these offensive uh, words to come out. What is that thing that's rotting down at the end of that tunnel? It's the human heart. Like Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whenever there's a problem with our words, that's telling you something about the very core of your being, that there's something very rotten at the very core of who you are, your heart. There's something very rotten and it's called sin. And so instead of speaking the truth, it says here that we use our tongues to deceive and uh, Deceive, that means to distort the truth. So, you know, have you ever, have you ever bent the truth? Um, have you ever exaggerated to make yourself look better in the eyes of others? Uh, have you ever said something nice to someone's face? You know, they say, oh, I'm a hopeless parent. And you say, no, you're wonderful. But secretly you believe that they are a hopeless parent. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, that's a terrible example, but, um, but you know what I mean? Where we can say things to people's face and yet it's not what we believe. It's because we're experts at painting this, uh, this false reality with the things we say. Not only that, but we also use our words uh, not to bless, not to build up, not to help, but to hurt, to inflict pain, which is the point of that image, uh, the venom of asps is under their lips. And it really is scary how much damage our words can do. Uh, you know, think about the, um, the words spoken at, you know, out of anger or the words spoken um, when you're really stressed out and, and become impatient with someone and you say stuff and it's hurtful. Or uh, when, you know, the gossip that we spread, that actually causes damage. Um, whenever we belittle or ridicule, and, uh, you know, you think about, I don't know if you can, like, think about the times where you've, you've said something, you know, maybe to a child, and, and you think later, boy, how could I say that? You know, the, the damage that, that that can cause, it's scary. And James, he uses this illustration, very powerful one. He says that the tongue is like a spark that can ignite a whole bushfire. And you realise there that just how much damage our words can do. You know, to an individual, it can destroy their life. Or to a community, we can, we can ruin a church by, you know, saying the wrong things, uh, spreading gossip or rumours or, or just criticising and complaining. Uh, we, we can cause so much damage with what we say. That's what it means that the venom of asps is under their lips. And then also their mouth is full of curses and um, bitterness. So, uh, you know, whenever we grumble and complain, that's what's going on there. So our words clearly demonstrate there's something very rotten going on in our hearts, that it's sin, and it just comes out. Uh, the heart is the wellspring of life. Well, why is it that so much that comes out is just so offensive and so vile? It's because of sin. Uh, not only that, but second, we see here how sin affects our relationships. So verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, whoops, I read too far there. Uh, so verse 15 to 17. Here we see 
Well, when you first read that, it just sounds like the evening news or the news feed on your app. Um, that, you know, when you read the news, it's just always story after story of violence and people doing horrible things to each other. Uh, that's what that verse is talking about. And yet, we realise that it's not just that, because it's just talking about the hostility that comes into relationships and breaks them apart. And that's something that just springs out of our hearts. Whenever someone gets in the way of what we want, what comes out of our hearts is hostility. So whenever someone crosses us, whenever someone disagrees with us, whenever someone contradicts us, whenever someone uh, outcompetes us, what happens is that the heart responds and out comes this attitude that says, you're in my way, okay? Or I don't like you anymore. And it's a hostile stance and as a result, you know, the relationship starts to crumble. And, uh, you know, sometimes people say uh, marriage is hard or um, being a parent's hard, uh, being a friend is hard, work, being a workmate is hard. You know, the issue is relationships. And it's not because relationships are wrong or there's anything wrong with relationships. It's the heart. It's what we do that um, makes them difficult and brings them down. It comes out of our hearts. It's the sin. And then finally, you see there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So verse 18. And what does that mean, the fear of God? The fear of God means to be in awe of God. It means to have reverence for God, to have respect for Him. But sin causes us to go about our lives as if He wasn't even there. And to illustrate that, you know, think about the times where you do say something, something that you would never dream of saying if other people were in the room. Or think about the times where you've done something that you would never dream of doing if just one person was in the room. And then you, then you realise, hang on a minute, God is in the room. <laughs> God is watching. And that's the way sin works. You know, we just completely forget. Forget that God is always there, always watching. Uh, no fear of God before their eyes. Sin causes us to see it, to look at ourselves as being the centre of the world, as if, as if everything revolves around us, as if God revolves around us, as if his job is just to make our lives go the way that we want. We assume that our way is best. See, no fear of God before their eyes. And so when you look at the vile words, the, um, the, the broken relationships, the no fear of God, we realise that this is not just some small problem. This is not something we can just, you know, just give me a course, six steps to improving myself. We can't fix this. This is far too deep. It's too entrenched. And it's, it's everyone is indicted. Paul says Jew and Greek. Another way to say that is moral and immoral. Religious and irreligious. Everyone is under sin. Everyone apart from the gospel. And what's the result? The result is that everyone's guilty. Everyone guilty before God. That's in verses 19 to 20. 
And uh, here we see, look at verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Uh, Have you ever been to a court hearing? Have you ever been summoned to appear before a judge in a court, maybe accused of something? Uh, Have you ever uh, witnessed that? You know, if you go to a courtroom, there's lots of words, isn't there? You know, lawyers speak. Uh, There's, you know, lawyers from different parties. There's, There's lots of words, you know, lots of avenues that the the accused can explore to try to reduce the sentence. And if they're not guilty, they can um, you know, plead their innocence and actually um, be acquitted. And so in a courtroom, there's lots of things to say, lots of excuses, lots of defences to give, lots of stuff to say. But when it comes to the final judgment, when we all stand before the judge, the one who knows all the facts, the one who sees right into our rotten hearts, and can even discern the motives that we've had uh, when we stand before that judge in that courtroom, do you know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear nothing. You're going to hear silence because all of the excuses, all of the defences, all of the boastings, all of the sense of moral superiority or the fact that you had a good upbringing or even the excuse, I didn't know any better, None of that will carry any weight on that day. Everyone will realise it. On that day, what will happen? Every mouth will be stopped. Everyone will be silent. Because everyone will know that, yes, I have sinned against God and I deserve to be cast into hell forever. No one will complain because it will be so obvious on that day that we're all guilty before God. But see, what verse 19 and 20 are saying is that God's law is supposed to do that to us right now. Okay, you don't have to wait till the last day when it's too late. You can have that experience right now. And that's why God gave his law. See, verse 20 goes on to say, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, this has been an extremely um, depressing sermon, I know. Uh, and, you know, we all feel horrible, which is the whole point. <laughs> um, but sometimes when we can hear just how pervasive sin is and, and the kind of mess that it causes, one of the reactions that we can have, which is another expression of sin, is to think, okay, I can fix this. I can try harder. Okay, give me God's law. Tell me what to do and I'll try harder. I'll do it. But that's not going to work because no one can justify themselves by keeping God's law. Verse 20 says that God never gave the law to be the remedy for sin. God gave the law to show you how far fallen you are. God gave his law to show you that you cannot justify yourself. You cannot get right with him by your own efforts. The law wasn't given to correct sin. It was given to reveal sin, which means that the law is kind of like Um, going in for an MRI. Okay, the reason you go in for an MRI is because you know there's something wrong inside. Uh, There's all these symptoms to show you that there's something terribly wrong. And so you pay all that money, get the MRI, and does the MRI fix your problem? Not at all. It just shows you what the problem is. And that's the way God's law functions. It wasn't given to fix the problem. It's just like an MRI. All it can do is say, look how 
fallen you are. Look how corrupt you are. And it does that like an MRI so that we can go and then find the cure that we need. The real cure. And what is that cure? It's the gospel. God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. That's what Romans is about. And we're going to look at that next week in great detail. But today, all that you need to see, all that you need to think about today is to realize that in order to receive righteousness from God, you first of all need to realize that your own righteousness is utter rubbish compared to God. Okay, Your record of good deeds, it is filthy in God's sight. That's what you need to realize. Because until you come to that point, you won't come to the foot of the cross with empty hands and with a silent mouth and receive the gift of salvation the only way that it can come which is as a gift, a gift of grace. So you need to first come to that point where you can see it's impossible. I cannot fix my heart, but God can, and he does it through Jesus. Okay, so that's, we all have to come to that point where we're just lying flat on our face thinking, I cannot do it, it's, it's not me. Only God can change someone so vile like me. And the good news is that he does. And we're going to think about it next week, so make sure you come back. Um, don't get sick. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this very confronting passage uh, that just shows us how pervasive sin is. And it is um, really depressing to think about that we live in this world that was created to be beautiful, a world that was created to reflect your glory. And you created people to reflect your glory in a special way. And Lord, we realize that because of sin, that's just so marred and fallen and corrupted. And we know that we're all part of the problem. Um, but Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to reveal that to us so that we don't go on in this delusion thinking that we're okay. Uh, Lord, we pray that the effect of today would be to truly humble us that we can even see that uh, even as believers who have been set free from sin, uh, we still see that its, uh, that its power still has um, a, a play in our lives and that the presence of sin is still there. Uh, and Father, we realise that we still do things that um, are, are displeasing to you and we still say things that are like uh, a stench uh, before you. <clears throat> so forgive us for this, Father. But we pray that this would just drive us deeper into Christ, that we would always just recognise that he really is our only hope and our only peace and the only hope for this world that is um, lost and in rebellion against you. <clears throat> and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.